May it please the listeners, my name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief, and I am here today with my partner, Anne Marine Giblin, and we're going to talk about cybersecurity and cyber negligence. Hi, Anne Marie, how you doing? Hi, Rich, I'm good. How are you? I am excellent, and I'm excited for these topics because these are things that really affect everybody, whether you own a business or use a business or go on the internet. This is stuff that's important to you, right? Very true. All right. So we're going to talk about it, I think, largely from a business perspective. And let me start with kind of a very broad question, and hopefully you can focus us a little bit. If I'm running a business and I have customers who are coming to me from the internet and they're placing orders they're giving me information, right? They're giving me credit card information. They may be giving me some personal information. What are my obligations as a business to protect their cybersecurity? Oh, well, yeah, that is a broad question. You are not lying. So we would really start, you would be an e-commerce business because you are selling things you know, over the internet. So e-commerce, which has become a huge part of every business. And we would really start with what type of business you are. Now, it depends on what you're selling and what type of data you're taking in order to sell. So let's say you have your own widget business. I know that's such a lawyer answer, but I'm selling widgets and I'm selling them across the United States. And in order to sell my widgets, I have to fulfill the orders. So I need to get my customer's information of where they live and their name Maybe I have a loyalty program and I want their birth date so I can send them a birthday gifts, make them a loyal customer. And of course, I want to get paid, so I need to take some credit card information. So there's a lot of obligation with regards to all of that. Now, first thing I would say is if you're selling across the United States, we always start with the most stringent privacy law possible because the first thing you want to be concerned about is the collection of data and then how are you using it and securing it. And I always say cybersecurity and privacy are two sides of the same coin. So that would be my first question is what information do you absolutely need to take? Not what you would love to take. We used to live in an era when everyone would take all this data and use it any way they wanted. That's no longer the case. So I would say, what type of data are you taking and why do you need it? And then how are you securing it? And then we would start with the most stringent requirements, which in the United States would be California. But the way we regulate information in the United States really goes by buckets. So we have different types of information. Let me stop you. And I want to ask maybe about the most basic thing I can think of, which is credit card information. Every time I go on the internet, someone wants my credit card information. I ordered a pizza the other day and I gave them my credit card information. They didn't care so much about my social security number and birth date, but they very much wanted my expiration date and my four-digit code. So If I'm a pizza place taking credit card orders on the internet, what do I have to do to protect that? Well, for the most part, you probably don't realize it, but your pizza place is probably using a third-party vendor to take that credit card payment. And for good reason. Credit card data is some of the most sensitive in the United States, and it's essentially governed by the PCI Council, which is the payment card industry. And they have what's called the data security standard. So in order to be able to accept and process credit cards, a vendor has to be PCI DSS certified. It's a very expensive and onerous process that requires you to have sufficient levels of cybersecurity, proper segmentation and storage options. 
and other things that you need to be mindful of in order to actually take that information and secure it properly and process it the right way, including transmission. So you actually would need data tunnels to be able to transmit it back and forth. Most smaller businesses and even bigger businesses outsource that to a third-party vendor who's PCI DSS compliant and takes that risk on for them. Now, actually, one issue for businesses, if you are doing that, and I usually counsel most of my businesses that don't have the money to become PCI DSS certified to do that, make sure that the purchaser is leaving your website to go to the third-party vendor to complete the purchase. And why do we want to do that? If you are not PCI DSS certified, you shouldn't be taking any credit card information at all. If a customer is entering the information onto your website and then you're sending it over, that is a collection. And if that is captured or somehow compromised by a malware or hacker, any type of these newfangled crimes that we're seeing on the internet, you could actually be held liable for that. And you could actually, if you got audited, be prevented from ever taking credit card payments again which would kill your business. (laughs) So the best practice then for a small business is not to take the credit card data, but to utilize a third party who has the right procedures and equipment in place to do that. Who is PCI DSS certified. Okay, I get that. And what happens then for larger businesses who are taking in other kinds of confidential data? Suppose they are interested in my birthday and my social security number for whatever reason. They probably are. You know, the amount of data we have out there in the world is a little scary. I've actually been doing some discussions on artificial intelligence recently, and and that would really scare the audience here if we talked about how your personal data can be used against you, especially by an AI. But if you're a larger business, even larger businesses and my clients that are larger businesses, they still outsource that as well too. It does help spread the liability. So we're looking at someone else to take on that liability for us and the responsibility. But I would always caution all of my clients and any client we would speak to, any size business, make sure that you're taking the information that you absolutely need and don't take any extra information. Right now, we're up to 12 states with independent privacy regulations, several states with independent data security regulation, several states with data deletion laws. Everybody forgets that you have to delete the data at some point. You could find yourself stepping into a hornet's nest of data regulation just because you thought it'd be fun to send your customers a birthday gift and you really didn't need their birth date. And now that's considered personal information under most data breach statutes. And now you have to disclose it if it's been hacked. So what did you get out of sending this birthday gift? A huge bill and a headache. <laughs> right. So I would really always say, analyze why you're taking the data and why you need it and make sure that you understand why you need it and why you have it. And that when it's time to delete it, you actually delete it. So these laws, these cybersecurity laws and regulations, I mean, th- this is an area that is constantly changing, right? So for, I guess, the, my two-part question in that regard is, one, how do businesses keep up with the latest changes? What's the best practice? And then maybe what is new and exciting? What, what is a recent change that has happened? So I would say um, very self-servingly to hire us and obviously me to be your counsel. And that's the best way to keep up with it because that's my job. Yeah. By the way, that's (laughs) usually the answer my guests have is hire a lawyer. But we mean it most of the time. And I think here we mean it, right? I definitely mean it. But I I am being, you know, it's a lot to manage if it's something that you're just trying to pick up now. You know, I've been in this industry for too long. And it's one of those things where your knowledge base is continually increases. And personally, I spend the first two hours every morning reading, the last two hours every morning reading, because 
every single day being a lawyer in this space, I see something I've never seen before. And I love it. It's one of the reasons I love this area of law. But it's also one of the reasons why you really need an experienced professional to guide you through it because you have to understand the history of why these laws exist, what the legislatures and local legislatures are looking to change and expand, and also how regulatory bodies look at these issues as well, too. Because, you know, I've seen some attorneys just focus on, oh, I have to comply with California, so I'm just going to look at California statute and I'm done. But you're a consumer-facing business. Have you taken a look at what the FTC is doing? Have you considered if you have any other types of data, like financial data that other regulators might be looking at, or HIPAA-compliant data? Or have you decided or understood that maybe the data you have is now considered private health information and you're not a HIPAA-covered entity? So there's these new laws coming in to regulate you on this front. So there's it's a really complicated web of data regulation that's constantly changing. So you really do need experienced counsel. Obviously, I would advocate for myself because I like myself, but just find someone that knows what they're talking about. Um, and also too, it's really important for your IT teams in particular to be abreast of the latest changes. One great way to do that is have them sign up for CISA updates. The FBI gives updates and so does the Department of Homeland Security. There's a lot of regulatory agencies now that are kind of filling in the gaps on new and emerging malware and indicators of compromise. And having your IT teams be aware of that and constantly up to date with that will help you catch things early, do emergency patching and things of that nature. And that really does go back to an information security program, which is why you need a lawyer. All right. Well, that's excellent. So go to part two of my very complicated compound question. What is a new, you know, give us an example of a new development that people taking personal information on the internet would want to know about? There's a few, actually. The two biggest ones that we're seeing right now is obviously emerging technology and how it's being applied by old law. So a great example of that would be virtual try-on and what's happening with these lawsuits. So in Illinois, there's a lawsuit called the Biometric Information Privacy Act, BIPA. It's actually been on the books for several years, but with new technologies, plaintiff's lawyers found new ways to use it. And one of the elements of BIPA includes facial geometry. And there was this little company called Cambridge Analytica that was using our pictures from Facebook to scan our faces for facial geometry purposes and put them in for facial recognition. So even though when BIPA was written, it excluded pictures, but the Cambridge Analytica case showed that pictures can be used to get your biometrics. So now what we're seeing is live video on the internet and a whole body of case law over, if I want to go on and see how glasses look on my face, I'm going to allow you to use my camera and scan my face and put the glasses on. Well, did you get consent for that? You've just taken my biometrics. Do I know what you're doing with that information? Do I have the right to opt out of it and get my information back from you? Do I live in Illinois? There's a lot of case law coming out about virtual try-on right now. It's very interesting. Does that apply? I know there are websites where you order clothing and you put in like all of your measurements. Is that that kind of information too? Is that considered biometric? No, biometrics would be anything that can belie your essential biology. So facial geometry, fingerprints, my voice, voice prints, even keystrokes in some regards, handwriting analysis. You know, it's interesting as the technology gets more sophisticated, our definition of what actually is a biometric is increasing. Before this, you wouldn't think that a picture, just like that Cambridge Analytica example, would actually be included. But because of new technology, it now is. So I would say for anyone that's taking this amount of data, measurements itself is not biometrics. And I can't see how it would be expanded. 
But if you have one of those mirrors or like those video cameras where the person can virtually try on the clothes and you're scanning my body and my face, that most likely would fit the definition. Again, you have to really take what are you doing, what information are we taking, and then see if it applies to any regulation. Okay. So businesses need to stay abreast of the latest. They should have legal representation. They should get professionals involved. They should outsource where possible. Let me ask you about something else businesses should have in this day and age, cyber insurance, right? So tell us a little bit, what should an ordinary business know about getting a cyber insurance policy? It's very necessary. It's really necessary for businesses of all sizes. It's really becoming a necessary coverage, like a general liability coverage. You know, if, if I'm going to sell a store and someone slips and falls and is going to sue me for a broken leg, it's almost the same thing because when you're taking data, that is what's covering the loss of that data. And especially in the cyber incident response space, we see a lot of new and creative hacks and cyber ins- and just mistakes. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had clients call me my person emailed this to the whole email list and they weren't supposed to, or my CFO left their laptop on the plane and she forgot to put her password on. You know, there's so many interesting stories, but those are all cyber incidents and they can become data breaches very quickly. So making sure you're covered for that is really important. Now, what would a company need to know? Cyber insurance is changing. The policies of a few years ago are not the policies of today. A very important place to start is your application. Make sure that you understand what you're answering. Work with your brokers to answer the questions accurately. We are starting to see some cyber insurers now take a better look at those applications when claims come in. And if you weren't exactly forthright or you made a mistake, it could cost you a disclaimer so that they won't cover your claim. And it could be an issue at renewal. A lot of cyber insurers at renewal are asking about incidents that have happened. So if you do have an incident, you don't want it to run through your insurance for whatever reason, Make sure you put a notice of incident in if you need to, or understand how that's going to impact your potential coverage going forward. You also want to make sure you have first-party coverage and third-party coverage. So first-party coverage would cover the business. So I've been hacked. I need to get my data back. I need to hire forensics. You also want coverage for ransomware. And what we're seeing in the cyber insurance space now is the coverages are becoming smaller. So it may be harder to get coverage for ransomware. It may be very hard to get coverage for the payment of the ransom payment. That's a really hotbed legal issue right now. It might be hard to get good limits. And I would say good limits is, you know, a million dollars, $5 million for common things like a business email compromise. A business email compromise is when someone emails you a fake invoice. You think it was actually your client or your business partner. You pay it to the fake bank account. Now you've lost the money. So the more common these scams become and the more claims insurance companies see, you start to see the coverages become a little bit tighter. Yeah, I I could see that. And I take your point about providing information. Insurance companies will ding a claim if the application was inaccurate in a material way. And so if you've had cyber incidents and you don't tell your insurer prior to taking out a policy, and then you put in a claim and they find out about your incidents in the past, that will be a problem, right? It could be a problem. I, the larger problems I see normally are things like a saying that you have a certain level of security in your business that you don't. You know, don't forget an insurance policy is a contract and the insurance company wants to get and is entitled to get under the law the benefit of their bargain. So their bargain is, I want to know what type of risk you are. And then that'll inform me on how much I have to charge you. Because the more I charge you, the more likely it is you're going to have an incident. 
the better secured you are, the better security you have, the less likely it is you're going to have an incident. So I'll charge you less. So if they come back and you have an incident and they say, oh, well, you told us you had multi-factor authentication, but you don't actually have multi-factor authentication. Well, you lied and we didn't price this properly. So now we have the right to not cover this claim. Yeah. I think it's very important. And, and I actually, as someone who is part owner of a law firm, I think cyber insurance is as important as malpractice insurance. When I think about what are the real risks to our firm out in the world, that seems to me just as real and just as important, right? thousand percent. It's important and necessary for almost every single business. Now, some smaller businesses might be able to get away with it, but I would say one cyber incident could be the end of that business. So it's a really important, necessary coverage. Okay. Let me ask you about something else in your area. And we could talk for hours about cyber and this kind of stuff, but we're not going to because that's not what we do on this podcast. But I want to talk about cyber negligence, which is a term I don't think I've been familiar with for that long. So tell us a little bit about what cyber negligence is and how that concept is evolving. Oh, yeah. So you're not familiar with it for too long because it's relatively new, believe it or not. But we were seeing, you know, when I first started got, in, got into cybersecurity, it really wasn't an area of law. And I've seen this industry really explode to my benefit. It was nice to be an early adopter. It took a long time to see the fruits of that labor, but happy to be here now. But cyber negligence is a relatively new concept because what we were first seeing when we were seeing data breaches and cyber incidents and the lawsuits that were resulting from it is that the victims, the companies, were thought of as victims. So you weren't allowed alleging negligence yet because there was no duty. So for our listeners on the call who may not be lawyers, negligence is a concept where it's duty, breach, and damage. So if you have a duty to do something and you breach that duty and that causes someone damage, you can be held liable for negligence. The great example is a car accident. If I'm driving my car, I have a duty to drive it responsibly and not hurt someone. If I see you crossing the road and I accelerate and hit into you, I breach that duty by accelerating and hitting you. And I probably caused you damage because I just hit you with my car. You can sue me for negligence and probably manslaughter at that point or attempted manslaughter because that's a little crazy. <laughs> but that's a criminal issue. But similarly, we're seeing the same thing with cyber incidents. It was the victims, but they had no duty yet because it wasn't a known risk at the time. That has greatly changed over the last 10 years. Now, cybersecurity is very well known. People know what they have to do. If you're taking someone's data, you should know you have to secure it. There's no more saying, oh, I'm the victim of a cyber incident. How could this have happened? Well, I read about cyber incidents every five minutes on my computer. How did you not know it was going to happen? So that's when we started seeing cyber negligence come on the scene. And very interestingly, we're starting to see it a lot more because of recent case law developments. In particular, there are several states in the United States that have what's called the economic loss doctrine, which means that you can sue for negligence, so duty breach damage. If there's a property damage, so in that car example, say I, after I hit you, I hit a wall of a building, the building can sue me, you can sue me for your personal injury. Great, I can sue for both of those. Now say that building I hit was about to close a deal for $10 million. And because I hit the building, the guy couldn't press send on his computer and he lost the $10 million deal. Well, in our society, in those states, we've drawn the line and we say, no, you can't sue for the $10 million. That's an economic loss. That's a contract loss. If you don't have a contract between you, as a society, we've drawn a line and said, you can't sue for negligence for that. Too far remote, right? Well, there's new case law now coming out of California in the Calhoun case, which was already affirmed by the Brown case, that holds that a person's personal information is their property. 
So now you could sue as a property damage if I give you business, my information, and you lose it or damage it or it gets stolen. And we've actually seen larceny claims being held, conversion of chattel claims being upheld for this, and now negligence. Okay. So, you know, much like businesses, I, when I think of negligence in a business, I think of the classic ice in, on the sidewalk right in front of the store and somebody slips and falls. And if you know there's ice there and you know you have customers coming in, you might have a duty to get rid of the ice, to go spread some salt out. And similarly, if you know you're taking in cyber information and you know there are bad actors aplenty, you have a duty, I would think, to take reasonable precautions to protect that information. That's what you're talking about? Yeah, so it's actually even more serious now that we have regulation to back it up because it almost informs the duty. Because not only are you supposed to know that, hey, I'm taking your personal information, someone could use it to steal your identity or open a credit card in your name or do you know whatever else they want to do with it. But I also have an independent obligation to comply with these regulations that I'm supposed to comply with. So if I'm complying with them, I'm protecting your information. If I'm not, I'm not. So that actually informs the duty and kind of gives it a little bit more teeth. A perfect example, though, and this is why it's so hard for most businesses to fully comply or it takes a long time to fully comply, is the laws are different state to state and the laws are based on where the person lives. So right now I live in New York. I don't have as many privacy rights as a Californian would, but I do have the SHIELD Act, which tells businesses if they take my information, they need to secure it. There's no private right of action, of course, but I could sue for a negligence claim. Hey, my information has been damaged breach of contract, depending on what the business does, or a bunch of other different and unique cause of action that have been sticking. Now, say I moved to California. Well, all of a sudden I have all these rights because now I'm a California citizen. I can ask you to delete it. I can ask you to restrict my selling. I can ask you to give me all my information, tell me what you have on me. It changes the onus. So it also changes the onus for the business to understand where their customers live if they're moving and how the obligations change. So it just makes it a very complicated area and very hard to deal with compliance-wise. Yes, and another reason you should go out and get cyber insurance. Yes, exactly. And me as an attorney. (laughs) All right. Well, now, if you think my questions have been broad and difficult so far, you'll like this last one. What is AI going to do to all of this? I mean, as AI grows and grows, I think it it will compound these issues exponentially, right? You know, artificial intelligence is a game changer for (laughs) all of us and everything that, you know, I'll just start there. One of the biggest issues that we're going to see in artificial intelligence is that it's anti-privacy. Artificial intelligence needs big data to work properly and function. And that's how it learns. Artificial intelligence as well, when we have these new deep learning machines, once it learns information, it becomes part of the evolution of the artificial intelligence. A great example that I stole from a law professor years ago that I had a panel on this was it's like baking a cake. If you have all the ingredients for a cake, I have egg and sugar and oil and flour and water, and I mix them all together and I bake it, what comes out is not those ingredients, it comes out a cake. Well, now if you say, I'm allergic to egg, I can't eat a cake with egg in it, there's no way for me to pull the egg out of that cake. I have to throw that cake away and start new. The egg has now become part of the new evolution of the ingredients. That's exactly how artificial intelligence works. In a machine learning algorithm, it goes out into the world and it learns on data. Once that data is learned, it becomes part of that next evolution of the machine that's now faster and smarter because of the data it learned. For us to be able to say at that point, say it took illegal data, 
I can't pull the data out. I'd have to throw away the cake. And that's actually what the FTC has been doing. There's been a few cases where they've practiced algorithmic disgorgement and they've actually thrown out the entire algorithm because they found out that information was illegally obtained and used to train or evolve the algorithm. Very interestingly, the FTC has sent an investigation letter to OpenAI, which is the company doing ChatGPT. I can almost guarantee they will not sit down and just let an algorithmic disgorgement happen considering how lucrative and expensive their machine is. So this is going to be one to watch to see what happens in the future. But because of that and because of the way that AI operates and works and also with next generation computers like quantum computing, privacy controls are going to really become obsolete. And then what is a business going to do? One of the best and effective tools right now from a cybersecurity perspective that businesses can employ is encryption. There's a very real possibility with next-gen computers and artificial intelligence that encryption standards will be completely obsolete, that essentially they'll be able to be broken immediately. What are we going to do then? I don't know yet. <laughs> Make sure you're compliant now and keep abreast of what's going on. <laughs> right, this, this, this is spinning out into a bad science fiction movie, I think. <laughs> the robots take over at the end, right? Oh, uh, it's really scary. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a little bit scary, but I could see how it's very interesting and a lot to keep up with. So, Anne-Marie, you've given us a little bit of a sense of this as you've spoken about some of these issues. But just to put it in perspective, tell us what your legal practice is and what you generally work on on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, my focus is proactive cybersecurity, which is really all-encompassing. So I I deal with these issues on a day-to-day basis. For the most part, I'm helping companies put in compliance programs or cybersecurity risk frameworks to deal with all their data flows. So we talk about what the business does, what type of data it collects, uses, maintains, secures, when they're deleting it. We put all the policies and procedures in place, and then I help implement them. It takes a long time. A lot of times we need other vendors to come in or we're dealing with new technology and we have to fit a square peg into a round hole. Really fun, interesting stuff. On top of that, I also help companies prepare to be the victim of a cyber incident. That means we're putting a cyber incident response plan in place. And more often than not, while we're actually doing this work, they have some type of cyber incident and then we're managing it. I also deal with cyber incidents on a daily basis. If you've been hacked, have any mistakes made, reconfiguration, lost laptops. We deal with that as much as we need to. And that's basically the encompass of my practice. So I, I always call myself a data lawyer and I deal everything data. <laughs> that's great. And I do, you know, my litigation practice includes some matters that have arisen out of cyber hacks and the implications on the businesses involved and insurance coverage. And I can tell you from having litigated at that end, it's much better to be proactive and try to stop any of that before it starts. I totally agree. And that's why I switched to this side of the V. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very hard once you get into litigation, but sorting out the risks and responsibilities of all of that is a difficult prospect for courts and for legislatures and really for society. And it's only going to get more difficult. Thousand percent. Okay. We close typically with a closing argument. Do you have anything you want to say in sum on this area for the listeners as a takeaway today? Yes. You know, I get this all the time. Everybody wants to know what's the easiest, cheapest, quickest way to become compliant. And I think that's the wrong question. It's really going back to data flows and understanding data is a a new form of currency across the world. 
is the lifeblood of most businesses. So understanding why you're collecting data and how you're using it, and then making sure that all of those collections, uses, and everything else you're doing with data is compliant is really an integral, necessary part of doing business. So it's only getting worse. It's much easier to start when you're a new business and start fresh. It's totally fine to start now if you've been in business for several years and done nothing, but please don't ignore this issue. It's only getting worse. The regulators are only getting more attention on it. And especially in the next two years, I see a flood of new cybersecurity regulation coming down. So today's the day. Get started today if you haven't. Excellent advice. Anne-Marie Giblin, thank you very much for joining us today. I have a feeling we'll have you back on down the road. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Rich. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should engage a lawyer of your own choosing. Tartar Krinsky and Drogan is a mid-sized, full-service law firm located in New York with offices in New Jersey and Los Angeles. You can see more about us at tartarkrinsky.com. You can contact us at the email address podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at at lawbriefpodcast. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the handle at lawfulriches. I know it's a little bit silly, but at least you don't have to spell Schoenstein. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and we are adjourned.